Let's open our Bibles to the last book, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, second chapter. We're going to be reading some verses this morning. When Jesus faced off with the devil, he had a very simple method. He quoted three verses to defeat, to disarm, to resist Satan's attack. It's a very simple method. And Jesus, by his example, by his words, by the revelation of what he accomplished, leaves for us an example of how we are to resist the devil. You say, well, I'm not sure I I need to resist the devil. There's only one of him. Peter commands all believers in 1 Peter 5 to resist the devil, to not be unaware of the wiles, as Peter and Paul called them, of the devil. Well, this morning, as we open to Revelation 2, we find the same Jesus who faced off with the devil with those simple weapons is writing to a church. By the way, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. Do you ever think about that? Paul wrote epistles to seven churches. Jesus wrote little short postcards to seven churches. And those seven churches are right here in Revelation 2 and 3. And Jesus wrote to them, and he told them that they needed to know the same lesson, how to use God's word to overcome, to resist the evil one. And he commends this first church because they have done so well. The church in Ephesus had done so well at resisting the evil one. And as we open to these verses, we're opening to Christ's first personal letter to a church. In this letter, he commends a group of believers who followed Paul's teaching and also Christ's example of how to resist the devil at every level in life. And we need to pause and ask about what kind of people these were that Jesus wrote to at Ephesus in the first century. Why would he commend them and what exactly was the context that those people had that that they lived out Christ in their everyday life? Well, if you know anything about history, Ephesus was second among all the cities of the Roman Empire. First was Rome. Second of all the cities of the worldwide empire, the ancient world, the Mediterranean world, the second city after Rome was the city of Ephesus. If you were arriving in Ephesus this morning, the center of Greek mythological worship, there is one site that would catch your eye. If you were coming into that great city 2,000 years ago, something would captivate you immediately. It would not be the bustling harbor that was teeming with boats. It would not be the roads lined with exotic spices and goods coming from the east and heading to the west. It would be the center of the town, the lustrous golden gleam of the seventh wonder of the ancient world. It was the largest building of the ancient world. And it sat there glistening in the sun. It was the temple of to Diana or Artemis, and it was the center of the city of Ephesus and the focus of all the people who came there. Before your eyes would sit that largest building of the Roman Empire, four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens, the size of an entire city block, ten stories high, covered in gold. Cities across the empire that wanted to be rained on by the gods with health and prosperity would send a gold-covered column to be placed there around the image of Diana or Artemis so that her favor would rain down upon them wherever they were from. 
Ephesus was famous in the ancient world for its beauty. The temple of Artemis stood as one of those wonders, 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, a forest of over 125 columns, each 60 feet high, each weighing easily 30,000 pounds, all being gifts covered with gold, pure gold, reminders of their worship of this mythological god of Diana or Artemis. Ephesus was famous for its religion. The temple contained an image of its goddess, which it was claimed had fallen from heaven. Now that's in Acts 19, the first time Ephesus shows up in the biblical record. It's in Acts 19. It says in verse 35, they believe that that Diana was fallen from heaven in this image that was set up, this grotesque image, by the way. It was a very ugly image, uh, very distended and disfigured. It was a fertility goddess image, but they were told it had fallen from heaven and they set it up in this temple. Indeed, it may well have been a meteorite originally, but silver coins from many places show the validity of the claim that the goddess of Ephesus was revered all over the world. The, The little coins that the silversmiths made that Paul ran into a little conflict with in Acts 19. Those little coins are found at the furthest extremities of the Roman Empire. People carried them around as little hopes for good luck and favor. So her spell, as it were, Diana's, went to the furthest reaches. Ephesus was also famous for its position. As second among all the cities of the empire, only Rome exceeded Ephesus in her wealth and in her influence. The church at Ephesus is addressed first because Jesus Christ realized that this church, the the place of Paul, the place of Mary, the mother of our Lord, lived in Ephesus, the place of Timothy, the place of John who wrote the book of the Revelation, this church that Eusebius tells us numbered 50,000 at its height. This church was vital to spread the gospel across the ancient world. But alongside all that beauty, all that power, all that grandeur, Gross immorality existed in Ephesus due also to the temple of Diana's presence. All day long, within the confines of this largest golden palace in the world, thousands of male and female prostitutes continuously gave themselves to the sordid worship of this pagan fertility deity. And then after a long day at work in the temple, at dusk, They would then be released to go into the city. And each of those thousands of male and female prostitutes would earn a living in the bustling atmosphere of travelers who came by land and sea to this metropolis. What a sordid, immoral, decadent place this was. And now Revelation 2, Jesus talks to these people. And listen to his voice as he commends them for living for him in such a very bad place. What an example to us that no matter where we live, no matter what culture the gospel finds us in, that Jesus Christ has given us the key to resisting, to holding back the influence of the world, of our flesh, and of the devil and his demons that surround us, seeking to neutralize us at all times. Revelation 2, we'll read 1 through 3 in verse 6. Jesus says this, To the angel 
of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Verse 6, the commendation continues. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus wrote first to Ephesus. And he wrote a lot of commendations. Now we know that he did find a fault. But never forget that to this little group of believers huddled in the shadow of one of the most powerful buildings and and cultural holds any city had ever experienced, the evil of Ephesus had not permeated the church at Ephesus. And Jesus commended them for that. And this morning, I hope we all learn what they knew, how to resist the devil, the world, and the flesh by habit through the word of God. Let's bow together. Father in heaven, open our eyes to your word. It's living, it's quick, it's powerful. It can pierce right down to the very core of our beings. It can reveal the areas in our lives that need to be surrendered to you this morning, that need to be changed by your spirit, that need to be yielded in sanctification to you. And I pray that your word might have freedom through your spirit in our midst this morning to change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our desire. For his precious name and glory we pray. Amen. The truth of Christ's example, resisting Satan with God's word, is the lesson the Ephesians learn. Now from these little three verses we read, three and a half verses, you don't really see that. You just see the commendation. But if we go back, and let's go back to the book of Ephesus, uh, the book to Ephesus, the book of the Ephesians, believers, starting in chapter 2, I want to give you a lesson in seeing the prime example that the Ephesians were of learning to live in an evil world. Now, we also need to learn to live in an evil world. Our world, we don't have one solid block, gold column, temple of prostitution in Kalamazoo or in Michigan. Uh, we, we do have a lot of other edifices that are, that are monuments to sin, but, but we don't have anything quite like this largest building of the ancient world. But we do live in an evil world. And the lessons that the Ephesians learn in the midst of all this debauchery was that Jesus Christ could plant a church and that church could be well-pleasing to God. And these Ephesian believers that that we're going to read about in, in the book that was written to the Ephesians were those who were well-pleasing. And they got the first of Christ's personal letters. And in this letter, we see reflected the best part of the city of Ephesus. Jesus shined out through these Ephesian believers. Jesus had a light that that shone brightly in the darkness of this Greco-Roman world and their decadent culture. 
In fact, if you read the, the little run-up to the book of the Ephesians in the book of Acts, uh, you find this was a vibrant church. You don't have to go to Acts, but it says in Acts 19 that Jesus Christ was preeminent in this church, that at the founding of the church, fear fell on them all, and the name of Jesus was magnified. That's what it says in Acts 19.17. So at the founding of this church... Christ was preeminent. They had a galaxy of great speakers. They had the Apostle Paul. They had Apollos who came through. They had John who lived there. They had Mary who lived there. They had Timothy who pastored them for a long time. But, but it was Christ who was preeminent in this church. That was the vibrancy of this church. The Ephesian church was started by believers whose lives had been deeply changed. If you remember, Acts 19 says that the founding of this church was when Paul came and preached to them about the power of Christ, the people became convicted of their witchcraft. They had all these books and and different methods that they used in occultic events and activities that they participated in. And they came, and if you remember in Acts 19, they burned this huge pile of magical art books and all this stuff that that was involved with the occult. And, And because of that, Acts 19, 18 and 19 says that many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them. These Ephesian Christians from the beginning when they received Christ, made a public renunciation of their old lives because God's word was prominent in this church. And it says in Acts 19.20 that the word of God grew and prevailed. So the run-up to the book that we love so much to read, the book to the Ephesians, in Acts 19, the run-up to this church is that they were powerfully influenced by the word of God, they were repentant of their past, and they publicly burned all the accoutrements, all the the relics of their old life. And so we could describe this early church by what Christ's word within them produced in their lives. And starting in chapter 2 of Ephesians in verse 3, we could say that Christ's word in them helped them to resist immorality. Because of Christ's word in them, they resisted the immorality that was in that one city block building. And they were new creations in Christ. They had repented of their past lives. Look at verse 3. It says, Among whom we also had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But notice what the beginning of the verse says, in times past. You see, they had repented. They had turned. You You know what repentance means? It means a change of mind that changes our behavior. We are headed this way, and our minds are saying, this is what we want, we're living for. And when we, when we are confronted by the claims of Christ, we turn from our wicked ways. Our mind says, that is wrong. So our behavior, energized by God's grace, goes in a different direction. In fact, it says of another church in the first century, the church in Thessalonica, it says how you turn to God from idols. Repentance in the Bible is always a turn from this direction to a new direction. Now, sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we're kind of like Lot's wife. We're looking back and, and we're defeated and we're tempted and we're drawn back. But born again Christians have repented. 
it means that, that we've had a change of mind. We, we've looked at our old life. We've heard the gospel of Christ. And we've responded in faith to Christ. And that change of mind has changed our direction. So they had repented. The culture of Ephesus was overtly wicked. They were saved and living every day in what could be described as sin city. These Ephesians vividly portrayed resistance to that magnificent palace of sin and immorality, the temple of Diana. There was in Ephesus a culture that had a very strong tug of immorality. It, it, it was the magnet. This temple of Diana was a magnet. In fact, Bonnie and I, uh, I think it was last March, a year ago right now, we, we had a whole boatload of people that were going around doing a Holy Land tour, and, and we took our little bus off this boat. And we, when we went to Ephesus, it was just unbelievable. The, the uh, Turkish guide that, that led us around got the whole group together on the street of this huge, huge archaeological remain. And they've only opened up a little part of the big city it was. And the, the archaeologist guide had everybody real quiet, and he says, look, right there. And, and one of the, he says, one of the people was actually standing on what he was pointing at. And so they backed up, and we all looked down, and in the very stones of the streets of Ephesus were carved, and, and the guide showed us several different carvings. There was a carving that represented homosexual prostitution. So if you were homosexual, you would look on the street, and you'd find this little symbol, and if you followed the little symbols, you'd end up in front of a door where there would be homosexuality available for sale. There was another symbol that was for heterosexual immorality. And if you looked down close enough, you'd find that, and you'd follow those, and there would be that place. There were these symbols that were chiseled right into the streets. So every day when you went to work, every day when you went to the market, every day as you went to school, or to the doctor's office, you were walking on top of symbols that were chiseled right into the streets to tug you toward immorality. Now that's blatant immorality. Now what I thought was interesting was that after they got all done, I pointed out that also chiseled in the street near a lot of these were the ancient Christian symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, that the believers, I believe, had had gotten down and chiseled into the the stone pavers the fact that Jesus Christ has set me free from following that symbol toward that door. You see, there was a, a strong influence, not only this tug of immorality, but of Christ's transformation. But all day long, in the confines of this city, this immorality was tugging at people. Look at chapter 2, verse 10, because these, these people had been ministered to by Paul's ministry. Uh, by the way, you're, when you read if the, the book of Ephesians, this was written 40 years before the book of the Revelation. So when Jesus wrote in chapter 2, you Ephesians, I commend you for what you've done, they were responding to 40 years of the teaching ministry that the letter to the Ephesians had had in their lives. And they had repented of their past lives, verse 3. But look at verse 10. They believed and saw that they had their calling in Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, not to follow the, the chiselings toward the old lives that we'd repented of, but we are called 
in Christ to good works. And, and keep going to chapter 4. It's over the page, verse 22. They had learned from Paul the spiritual secret of putting off and putting on. What Paul said to them is that you put off your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So first you put off, you consciously repent of, verse 22, the old way, the old following the chisel marks in the, in the pavement or whatever they were doing. And then you be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind. You say, Lord, I want to obey you. Lord, I want you to change my mind. I want to agree with you. In fact, we had a great lesson. Uh, we were eating lunch together as a family this week, and we were reading our, our little chapter that we read. And I said, let's have a little lesson. You know, every day we, that, that we meet with the children and talk to them about one facet of, of the Lord. And I said, the, the lesson this week is, what do you do when you get upset at each other and, and you don't get along? And, and so I said, the first thing you do is you have to tell the Lord that you are wrong. You have to say, Lord, I want to put off the way I'm acting, being angry or, or selfish or whatever. And Lord, I want you to change me. And I said, as soon as you do that, you go to the person that you hurt. And you say to them, I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Did you know those nine words are the most powerful words? They can change any marriage. They can change any parenting situation. They can change any friendship. Nine of the most powerful words in the world. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. You know, a lot of times we think those, we don't say them. In relational work within other people, we can't just think those words. For our relationships to work, we have to say, I was wrong. And we agree with God. See, we agree with God, verse 22, about our former conduct. We say that we were corrupt. And then verse 23, we say, I want you to renew me. I want you to change my mind. Do you remember what repentance is? It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It starts with the mind. It starts with me saying, I want to put off this corrupting influence in my life. And I want to be renewed. And I want, keep going to verse 24, it's, it's not enough to put off and be renewed. We have to, thirdly, put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then what he does is, the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 25, he goes all the way down through into chapter 5 and verse 7 with a listing of the things that we are to put off and that we are to get rid of and that we're to not have anymore and the the new things we're to put on. And so what he said is it's a whole new wardrobe. So they learn the spiritual secret of putting off and putting on in Ephesians 4, 22. Now look at chapter 5, verse 3. They allowed Christ to deeply penetrate their lives. You see, they weren't just Sunday Christians. They weren't just hearers and not doers. Jesus deeply penetrated their lives. Verse 3, but fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, that just describes Ephesus, let it not be once named among you. In fact, it, it, it's amazing. It says in the, the more modern translations, don't even let a hint of that be in your life. Don't, don't allow the old you to creep and seep back in. Get rid of it. Let Christ deeply penetrate your life. Then he continues in verse 4. Uh, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, they're not fitting 
If you're going to use your mouth for anything, he said, give thanks. Don't be critical. Don't be coarse. Don't be like a lot of the crude humor on American television and radio. Don't be used to that. Don't be listening to it so much that it just becomes a part of your life and that you begin to be like the ungodly. Filthiness, verse 4. Foolishness, verse 4. Coarse jesting. That is, that is joking about what is offensive to the Holy Spirit of God. Don't let that be in your life. Let Christ deeply penetrate your life. Look at verse 12. They didn't just let him deeply uh, penetrate their lives. They renounced all touch with their old ways. Verse 12 says this, For it is shameful even to speak of the things which are done. Now, just as a little application of this. Did you know it is possible to know so much about sin that we talk about things that God says it's shameful to even speak about? This 12th verse says that it's, shame, it's shameful not just to do those horrible things that are done only in the dark and by the wicked, the unfruitful works of darkness, verse 11. It's shameful to even talk about them and describe what's done by them. Did you know what Paul reduced it to? He said, in sin, we should be like children. We should be childlike. We don't know all about it. We, we, don't, we can't do a 30-minute oral report on all these sins. We, we aren't that well acquainted with it. You can almost tell how acquainted people are with sin by the little words that creep out in their vocabularies. It means that they are so used to sin, they're conversant in it. We're supposed to know it's evil. We're supposed to know what God abhors but we're supposed to look at verse 12. It's shameful to even speak of those things. Did you know that the old cronies of the devil are the media and culture that keep sin before our eyes, keep it on our minds, and we meditate on sin? And the mind is the entry point of the spirit world. And if we allow this evil and filth to be in our mind, there's an entry point. There is a landing spot. Do you remember when the Allies, uh, if you read in history, conquered back the Pacific in World War II? What the, the doctrine of the generals were is that if they could just leap over and get an island and, and hammer away and at great loss of, of troops conquer that island, they'll build an air base and then they'll hammer and they leapfrog. They didn't have to conquer every island of the Pacific. They just got these strategic bases so they could leapfrog across the Pacific until they had a base to attack the Japanese. And you see, one, the Japanese knew it. That's why they fought so to the death for every little island because they knew once we had a landing spot, once we had a foothold and took that island, we could leapfrog to another. And see, that's how it is in our lives. We must fight to not let the devil have these landing spots in our life. And the landing spots are, are these listings, starting in chapter 4, verse 25. Lying, verse 26. Wrath, verse 27. They give places to the devil all the way through. Corrupt words, verse 29. Uh, the, the filthiness in chapter 5, verse 4. All of those places, if, if yielded to the devil, that ground in our life gives him a landing spot, and he can slowly start permeating the influence to deaden us spiritually. Well, secondly, if, if you go back to verse 25 of chapter 4, I, I want to show you something. They, with Christ's word in the Ephesians church, not only resisted immorality, which was blatant, 
That isn't all that we need to resist. They resisted the evil atmosphere that had nothing to do with just the the gross stuff going on in that temple. There was not only strong immorality, there was a pervasive evil that surrounded every part of this culture of this massive cosmopolitan area of Ephesus. They had to resist strong evil influence because the temple, as the most revered site in the ancient world, drew literally millions of worshipers. Now, just a little history lesson. The precinct of of the temple of Diana of Ephesus was a safe spot. If you were a hunted fugitive and criminal, and if you made it all the way into the sacred precincts, the law officers could not arrest you if you got inside the temple compound. And there was this whole group of people that lived inside this largest building, the, the temple grounds, that were some of the seediest, wickedest, evil people that were pursued and wanted by the empire. But there was kind of a token amnesty for these people. And so that permeated this, this culture in Ephesus. There was this resident evil that was there. And because of that, criminals came from far and wide to find a haven. And their presence only permeated the city with evil. Again, we can see how much of Paul's teaching had been used by these believers to navigate this self-centered minefield of evil that was there. Verse 25, they followed Christ's example in chapter 4, verse 25, and the church was committed to truth. You see, this this minefield around the temple was it was a it was kind of like a a two level system. Uh, you were there was law, but if you got inside the gate, there was no law, and so there was kind of like this duality that that in some places you could do this, in some places you could do that, and that permeated the business world like it does today. It's kind of like you can say whatever it takes to make the sale, or it, it doesn't matter that you are fully truthful because most people, do you remember the book, The Day the World Stopped When Everyone Told the Truth? There was a book written that said all of business would shut down if everyone told the truth about how much debt there was and what the product really did and how ineffective it really was, and et cetera, et cetera. It, it, the day America told the truth, business would stop, Well, these people in Ephesus didn't tell the truth. And look at verse 25. That's why it says in chapter 4, put away lying. The followers of Christ had to follow his example, and they had to be committed to the truth, even though their culture was dishonest, even though their culture had all this seedy criminal influence there. Look at verse 26. They had to follow Christ's example, chapter 4, verse 26, of meekness. They had to release their hurts to God. This whole culture was a very, very kind of fighting culture back then. They were, they were driving cutthroat. And, and look what it says in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, don't be smoldering to get even. Verse 27, don't give place to the devil and, and let him the stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. Verse 29, Unlike the culture around you, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Don't pick up the talk of the world that that you live in. So Christ's word in them resisted evil. Christ's word in them resisted immorality. Thirdly, Christ's word in them resisted materialism. Remember I said that this largest building had all these 125 or 30 columns covered with gold? You know what else? The central bank of the ancient world was in Ephesus. Because Diana was so feared to the furthest reaches of the empire, they were, robbers were afraid to steal from Diana. 
They felt she could get them anywhere they went. And so the central bank of the Roman Empire was headquartered right in this precinct around the Temple of Diana. And because of that, and another amazing temptation that these Ephesian saints learned to resist was the incredible tug of their strongly materialistic culture. The banking industry, the financial sector all thrived in Ephesus. Commercial ventures flourished, financial splendors glistened, all those gold columns and everything else. And this often mostly blue-collar church had to live all day long surrounded by strong materialism. If you, if you read the lesson of the church in Ephesus, you find that it was not mainly the rich people that came to Christ. It was slaves and the poor working people, the working class people. And so here these people were coming to Christ in the middle of this glitzy, materialistic, money-flowing through city that they didn't really have any real pull to their lives. They were just working and and just barely making it, and this gold was flowing through and all this. So how did they learn to to resist this strong materialism? We'll start in Ephesians 1 and verse 11. I want to show you what Paul taught them. They learned from Paul's teaching, first of all, true riches are what is to come in Christ. In in other words, look at Ephesians 1.11 says, In whom we've also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Look what this says. We've obtained an inheritance. Now wait a minute. An inheritance is something you're looking forward to getting. It isn't something you have right now. You see, the early church understood what Paul said. True riches are what is to come in Christ. We are truly wealthy because we have all of Christ, but we don't fully have all that he's promised us. It's an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven, as Peter put it. The lesson to resist materialism is true riches are what are to come in Christ. Do you know why the early church called themselves pilgrims and strangers? Because they said this world isn't our home. This isn't all we're living for. You remember a few weeks back we were looking at 2 Corinthians where it talks about our lives are like tents. We live in a tent. Our body is a tent. Living on earth is like camping. If living on earth is camping, then heaven is home. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't put our, as it were, tent stakes too deep in this earth. And what Paul told them is, number one, true riches, verse 11, are to come. Look at verse 14. They needed to learn the secret of laying up treasures in heaven, verse 14 of chapter 1, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is just the down payment of what's to come. And so we have this life to come that we are to be, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, laying up treasures, stacking treasures in heaven, not on earth. You know, do you know why the church flourishes through all the vicissitudes of life? Because the church is not primarily decimated by economic downturns. Because our primary investment as believers, our most calculated investment is not our 401 IRA, 403B, or whatever. Our most calculated investment is making sure we're laying up treasures in heaven. Where moth does not 
come in and eat, where rust does not corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal. Do you remember everything Jesus said? He says, wherever we're stacking our treasures, where our heart will be. And our heart is a barometer of where our treasures are. And if we are constantly, (gasps) with every gasp of our economic system, it shows that our treasures, the, the barometer of our heart is attached to this earth. Paul said, no, you need to learn the secret of laying up treasure in heaven. The earnest of our inheritance until we're redeemed, verse 14, is in heaven. The down payment is ours in Christ, the Holy Spirit. Our real treasure is in heaven. Look at verse 18. They believe what Christ offered was greater than anything this world had to offer. Paul taught them that the eyes, Ephesians 1.18, of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You understand, uh, those are complex words, but they were believing that what Christ offered was greater than anything that this world had to offer. That's how they could live in the shadow of that gigantic building and not lust after the gold and not lust after the immorality and not lust after the, the loose lifestyle of the people because they had the word of God. This teaching had permeated their lives and they believed enough to resist finally if you look at chapter 3 or chapter 2 verse 7 of Ephesians 2 7 it says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us notice what it says in the ages to come in other words there's more to come they began to think about the eternal more than the temporal did you know you can endure almost anything if you have something to anticipate, if you say, if I just go through this, that's coming. And that's what these early believers had. Instead of getting it all now, they said there's more to come. The better is yet to come. In fact, have you ever heard the the story of the senior citizen, this lady, who told her pastor that she wanted to be buried with a, a fork in her pocket? Uh, in, in the casket, and the pastor said, what is that? And she wrote him this little note. She says, well, always at our senior adult potlucks, they always said, save your fork when you throw away your plate because dessert's coming. And, and that concept that, that the best is coming and save your fork, she said, put a fork in my pocket so when I'm laying in the casket there and people walk by and they go, what's that little fork in your pocket? Why did she, that's kind of weird. The pastor said, it's because she thought heaven was better. The best was yet to come. Heaven was better than anything this world had to offer. And that's what chapter 2 verse 7 says. The saints in Ephesus began to think about the eternal more than the temporal. In fact, if you get to chapter 3, look at chapter 3 verse 8. They started dreaming about winning the ultimate prize of Christ's well done. That became the goal of their life. They, they dreamed about the ultimate prize not being here on earth, not being accomplishing or possessing or achieving anything here. Look what verse 8 says. Unto me, chapter 3, verse 8, whom less than the least of all the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The ultimate prize, as Jesus said, is for him to look at our lives and to say, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. You know what that word servant is? We have an English word that's a little more graphic. Slave. 
Jesus said those who win the ultimate prize are those who dream about being the slave that does Christ's bidding on earth. And you know what Christ told us to do? He said, primarily lay up your treasures in heaven. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. The only thing you can take with you are people. That's why, again, on your way out, get your, your people invitation, your gospel track. Take them with you. If the only thing you can take with you to heaven are people, are you prepared to tell people how to get to heaven? Can you explain it to them? Just, just mark and, and circle the verses and say, here, read this. Just tell them, this is what changed my life. But we have to truly be convinced to resist materialism that true riches are what to come in Christ is all about. And the secret of laying up treasures in heaven is believing that what Christ offered us is greater than anything this world has to offer. And we need to think about the eternal more than the temporal. And as verse 8 says, we need to dream about the ultimate prize, the unsearchable riches. I remember when I was a little boy, my father uh, grew up in New Mexico and Colorado. His, his dad worked in the mining companies. You know, they were always mining for gold. And I remember my dad used to always talk about how there was still gold in those mines. And, and so once in 1967, he took our whole family out to Colorado and, and he bought this metal detector. It was a real clunky thing. It was in 67, they were, they were just starting out. And it was like carrying around a, a gigantic sewing machine, you know. And, and we were going to find these treasures. And I still remember clambering up the, the hillsides of Cripple Creek and of Leadville and all these places where my dad remembers the gold mines were. And we went in, and you know what? In, in June, do you know what we found in those holes? They were packed with snow. Still, in June, we couldn't get any gold out because the, the snowstorms were so big that they filled those mine holes with snow and they hadn't melted by June. So we never did find our gold. But boy, we looked for it. And, and I still have in my basement this old relic of a metal detector. And you know what? Every time I look at that, it reminds me of what lengths we'll go to on earth for earthly treasure. But Jesus said in chapter 3, verse 8, we should be living the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, another thing, and, and let's go to chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, these, these people were also living by this temple, and they had to resist the false worship, not just the materialism and the evil and the immorality, but they were careful to protect true worship because there was such strong false worship. In chapter 2, verse 21, the believers knew that the church was a building made by God of individual living stones that would never be destroyed. Did you know that in 263 A.D., the seventh wonder of the ancient world was destroyed? The temple in Ephesus is gone. All that's left is one column in the middle of a swamp. If you go to Ephesus today, the archaeologists set one of those 60-foot columns up, and it's in the middle of a swamp. It's just a malaria-ridden, stinky bog. There's one, one column sticking up to show where that great temple was. But look what it says in chapter 2, verse 21. Paul taught them, he says, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows up into a holy temple of the Lord. The church is made up of individual believers as living stones building a building that's made by God that will never be destroyed. Did you know you're a part of a building that God is building of individual people that will never be destroyed? Don't Put your hope on things on earth. Finally, and, and look back at chapter 1, verse 20. 
They had to resist Satanism. Another way the saints had been discipled by Paul was to resist the strong, satanic, occultic witchcraft that had grown up around pagan Ephesus. The only way a believer could last in Ephesus was to learn the biblical truths of how to stand against and resist all the ways that Satan and his demons were at work. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Believers who resist the devil know and believe Jesus is supreme. He's above all. It says in verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and listen, and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all principalities, all powers, all might, all dominions, and every name that's named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come, verse 22, he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Did you get that? All Jesus is greater than all. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We should not live in fear of the darkness, of the realm of darkness, of the prince of darkness. Those people had to learn. They had to know and believe that Jesus was supreme. Look at, look at verse 2, though, of chapter 2. Believers had to resist the devil by never forgetting he used to be their old master. See, we don't, we don't make fun. And we don't treat lightly the devil. It says in, in Ephesians 2.2, 2, In times past you walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Satan used to be our master, and he knows us very well. You know, they said the terrorists in Mumbai, remember the ones a couple months ago that shot up uh, Bombay, how horrible it was? Do you know what they knew? They knew that hotel. They knew it better than the police, and they knew it better than the soldiers. They had learned the back corridors. They knew how to use the servant stairways. And so that's how a handful of men held off the whole Indian army for day after day and killed so many people, because they knew the ropes. They knew the, the lay of the land. Our old master, the devil, knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our fears. He knows our secret appetites, and he through the flesh, the, the traitor that we live in, this body, the flesh that we live in, through the world that allures us all the time, and through Satan and his demons, he knows the ropes. He knows how to get us distracted. So they never could forget their old master. But look at verse 27 again, if you haven't marked it. Chapter 4, verse 27. Paul said, Neither give place to the devil. Believers who resist the devil have learned the practice of closing the entry doors to demonic influence. Do you know how this church began? As soon as they got saved, they said, hey, Satan used to have a hold of us in this literature, in this uh, material, in this media, in this conduct that we used to have. And so they got rid of it. They burned it. They closed the door to the devil. And if you are tempted through, through media, if you're tempted through music that reminds you of stuff, if you're tempted through pictures that remind you, if you're tempted by going to places where you've done things in the past that fed your flesh, close the door to the devil. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Finally, verse 11, and this is it. Believers, look at chapter 5, verse 11. Believers who resist the devil never get relaxed around any of the tools Satan uses to poison their minds in the minds of this world. Look what it says in verse 11 and ha- of chapter 5. And have no 
fellowship. That means don't be comfortable and, and, and communing with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Don't get relaxed around any of the old ways Satan used to enslave you. Don't fellowship with them. Now, there's a difference between Jesus being friend of publicans and sinners and sharing the gospel and going to a bar to just imbibe of the old ways. There's a great difference. One is going in as a missionary. Jesus went into the company of evil people as a light. It's not going into the darkness for fellowship, for partnership. And, and it can be the darkness of old haunts or it could be the darkness of old media. It, the things we used to do, we must have a complete break from them because our old master knows how to trip us up. The choices that Christ seeks are, number one, by God's grace, I will follow my calling in Christ. I was prepared for good works. By God's grace, I will learn the spiritual secret of putting off and putting on. Even today, there are things in our lives we should say, I want to put those off, O oh Christ. I don't want those to be a part of my life. I commit to learn the spiritual secret of repenting of my past and of verse 11 of chapter 5, resisting evil influence. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. I would like you to think about one thing. One thing that the Ephesians, whether it was resisting immorality or resisting the evil influence or the false worship or resisting the strong tug of Satan in, in their old lives, think of how they took the word of God and believed the word of God and said no to sin. And then pick one area of your life and say, Lord, I want to learn to put off that old me. And I want to put on the new me in Christ. And I want to walk in the power of your spirit in the newness of Christ. And I want to know the secret of resisting the devil, my flesh, and the world by trusting your word. Let's bow before him in prayer. Father, I thank you that the Ephesian church was commended by you, O Christ, because they strongly adopted the truth of your word. They believed it. They received it. They lived it. And they followed your example. They resisted the devil. They resisted their flesh. They said no to the old them. And they said yes to the new that you created within them. May we do so today for your glory. I pray we would celebrate this day our newness in Christ as we walk in the power of your spirit, armed by your word, resisting like you taught us to do. That's our desire. Show us how. Make us doers today. In the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Take a track as you go.